I bid you welcome. It's good to see each one who has gathered today for our Bible class time. Um, we all welcome those online as well, praying that the Lord will touch all hearts. Now, I have come back to Zechariah because there are a few things I wanted just to uh, consider. So we're turning to Zechariah chapter 10. Zechariah chapter 10, and we will read just a few verses at the start of the chapter. Zechariah chapter 10, and reading from the verse number 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright, bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have, sent, have seen a lie, and have told false dreams, they comfort in vain. Therefore they went their way as a flock, and they were troubled because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And we'll end there knowing that the Lord will bless the word to our hearts. Now, among all of the minor prophets, the prophecy of Zedekiah is characterized by very intense and also explicit messianic detail. The Lord's person and the Lord's work are addressed fully in the book of Zechariah. One of the ways in which Zechariah does this, in which he addresses who the Lord is and what the Lord has done, is by presenting Christ through means of some of his titles. The Old Testament as a whole contains many of the Savior's names, and in that way God draws our attention to certain aspects of, of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Old Testament times, using names was a very effective means of teaching God's people about the Messiah. And we can think right away of many of the names of the Lord Jesus that we find in the Old Testament. It continues to be an effective means of instructing the Lord's people, that is, uh, the use of His names. Because Christ, remember, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so whatever His name meant in Old Testament times to the Lord's people is what it means to us in our time and in our own generation. And so when we find in the Old Testament different titles that belong to Christ, we have found Christ and we can learn of Him. Now, already in Zechariah chapter 3 and 6, we have given some time to look at the messianic name branch, and we have looked at that closely because it was helpful, it was enlightening just to understand what the Bible means when it gives that name to our Savior. Here in this passage I just read with you, Zechariah chapter 4, sorry, chapter 10, and in verse number 4, we have another text that is messianic. Now, it may not seem that way when you first read it. Let's just read that verse again. It says, Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, 
out of him every oppressor together. There are four descriptive terms used in that verse. The corner, the nail, the battle bow, and oppressor. And as I said already, I say it again, at first it may not seem that this has anything to do with Jesus Christ. But I trust that as we look at this today in this uh, Bible study that you will see that there is actually here a very clear reference to our Savior. Now, regarding the interpretation of these words, the context is very, very important. And the context lies in verses 1 to 3 of Zechariah 10, these first three verses. In the immediate context, these verses reveal the Lord's care for His people, for His flock. That's really what the first three verses are, are all about. I just want to try to sum them up, those first three verses, quickly here before we get into verse number 4. What we have in verse 1 is supplication. It says, Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. And so the stress there, exactly the form of a command, ask, we're commanded to ask. There's stress there the need to seek the Lord for His blessing, and that blessing is symbolized by rain, by bright clouds, by showers, and by grass. And the inference, of course, of those words, may I just say, is that often a time of barrenness prevails over the flock of God, and therefore there is the need to supplicate the Lord for His blessing. Now, this was the position of the captives who came back from, from Babylon. Keep in mind always that the book of Zechariah was written, in the first instance, to people who had come out of Babylonian captivity. And therefore, we must always see the book in that first context in order to understand it. And so, here are people who are instructed to ask the Lord for His blessing, symbolized by these terms. And so, you've got supplication. Then in verse 2, you've got desolation. It says, For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. The latter part of the verse has to do again with the Lord's people. Therefore, they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. So, what is verse 2 describing? It's describing desolation. I mean desolation in the sense of being left desolate and empty and disappointed because an idolatrous system of false religion had prevailed to, uh, prior to the captivity, and even after the captivity ended, it still threatened the Lord's people, and it left them desolate. They just felt, we have no shepherd. We have no one to guide us. So, there's desolation. And of course, that could be applied widely today if I had time to do that, but you understand the sense, I trust, of verse number 2. Verse number 3, part A, it says there, Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. Here we have indignation, the Lord's indignation. He speaks of His own anger, being kindled against false shepherds, it really means, and also He refers to the goats. So, there's, there are false shepherds here in verse 3, part A, and 
There's also a reference to a people who were not the Lord's, the goats. The, the, the terms in Scripture that we think about in different places make this clear. You read of the sheep, the sheep and you read of the goats. That's a division that the Lord uses throughout the Word of God to signify those who are His and those who aren't, who aren't His. And when the Lord comes again at the end of time, remember what He will say or what, who, he, who He will address. Maybe it's a better way of putting it in Matthew 25, 31, 32. Then will He say to them on His right hand, uh, those who are called the sheep, and then those on His left hand, those who are called the goats. And He will speak to them in judgmental terms as we find in Matthew 25. And so, here is the Lord's indignation. So, see the, the, the progression here. Verse 1, there's supplication. We need to seek the Lord for His blessing. Why? Because of the desolation that verse 2 describes. False religion prevailing, idols and darkness and those who tell lies and those who bring false messages. We need the Lord to move. And the Lord is angry, therefore, against those who who set forth their lies and their dreams and so on. And he, he shows in verse number 3 that His anger is kindled against them. Then part B of verse 3, it says, For the Lord of hosts hath visited His flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them as His goodly horse in the battle. And in that part of verse 3, you have visitation. So, note that. The Lord says, in the end of verse 3, the Lord of hosts hath visited His people, the house of Judah. When did He do that? He did it when they were in Babylon. Again, I remind you of that. You must keep this in mind, that this is addressed to a people who had been in Babylon, in captivity, but the Lord visited them there, and He brought them out. And so, you have His visitation in verse number 3, part B. It says, He hath made them as His goodly horse in the battle. The Lord takes His people who can be defeated, who can be in bondage, and He can transform their lives and transform their whole spiritual state, and He makes them like His horse in the day of battle, a goodly horse. And so, there's a thought there of the Lord visiting His people in triumph and bringing them out of their bondage. So, that's the context of verse 4. These opening statements in verses 1 to 3, as I said, they reveal the Lord's care for His flock by coming to them, answering their prayers, giving them rain in the time of the latter rain, removing their desolation, visiting those who are false shepherds and dealing with them, and overcoming uh, uh, for or on behalf of His own people. And so, these opening statements show to us that the Lord does care for His people, and He's able to reverse things and turn matters around for their good, <coughs> excuse me, and for His own glory. But that matter of care, and that's the theme, the care of the Lord for His flock, that matter of care continues into verse number 4, in which the Lord writes through Zechariah of the person by whom this reversal would come. And he describes this person in verse number 4 under these terms, the corner, the nail, 
the battle bow, and then the ward oppressor. And we'll look at that very closely by the help of the Lord as we make our way through this study today. Notice the opening words of verse 4. Out of him. That could be read from him. From who? That's the question you immediately should ask. Because it's saying, out of him or from him came forth the one who's described by these terms. And so who is the him that's mentioned there at the start of that verse, out of him or from him? And of course it is the Lord himself. And the words are referring to the commission and the anointing of the person who is signified here. And that person is Jesus Christ. These terms all depict the Lord as the Messiah. And you can begin to see, I trust, that this is real. This is what's in view here. The first three verses describe a situation where these people need the Lord's care. They need a Messiah. They need a deliverer. They need someone to come along and rescue them. And so they're being told through Zechariah that out of the Lord, or in other words, by the Lord's commission, the Messiah is going to be raised up. Now remember, please, that the only, there only is one deliverer in both eras, the Old Testament era, the New Testament era. There's only one deliverer, there's only one Messiah, and that is Jesus Christ. No one else is in view as we look at the Scriptures, and we must always keep that in mind. And there are many, many statements, of course, that make that abundantly clear. But that does not absolve the situation from being distorted and being darkened by people who come along and they, they are false Christs themselves and they present false messages and false gospels and so on. And so we must really nail this down today that whether it's the Old Testament in a book like Zechariah or over in the New Testament where things are so clearly revealed to us, there is only one Messiah. And so, when the Lord speaks of His care in the Scriptures for His people and shows that He will exercise that care toward them, it's always through Christ. So, look at verse 4 and look at those terms. First of all, the term, the corner. And here we have Christ and His stability. That's what's meant by this term, the corner. Why would Christ be called the corner? But for the simple reason, the obvious reason, the blessed reason, that in Jesus Christ, in contrast with the instability and the insecurity that the false shepherds bring, there is stability, there's security, there's safety. That's what the Lord's telling you today. Out of the Lord's great commission to the Messiah, there comes the corner. That is Jesus Christ who provides a stable foundation for all of those who trust in Him. Now, that, that word corner is used in other scriptures, like Isaiah 28, verse number 16. And some of you will know that verse, but just let me read it to you, or you want to look at it, that's fine. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, and here we have it now, a precious corner stone. Now, the word stone is supplied in our authorized version, it's in italics, 
But let's just read it as it is in the Hebrew. A, tri- a, a stone, a tried stone, a precious corner. Do you see that? And so there's Christ again. And, and we know that's Jesus Christ because, as we'll see in a moment or two, that verse is quoted in the New Testament and applied to Jesus Christ. And so there's the word corner used of Christ. It's exactly the same word as here in Zechariah 10, verse number 4. And so we know that Christ is the corner. The, t- the word is also used in Psalm 118, verse 22, the word corner. It says, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. And so Christ is both the corner and the headstone. And the two go together. Well, you have a corner in a building. It's that part of the walls that really brings stability to the building. The the walls meet at the corner. They're knit together at the corner. And the Lord is showing you and me today that that's what Christ is to us. He's the headstone. He's the finished part. But He's also the corner. Psalm 118, verse 22. And when you look at that verse, it says, The stone which the builders rejected. What's that describing? That's describing the crucifixion of our Lord. It was a prophecy uh, in Psalm 118, 22 of the Lord's death. He would be rejected by those who crucified Him, and yet as a result of His suffering, He is elevated, He is, he is exalted, and He becomes the headstone of the corner. Look quickly at Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, 42. And here's the Lord Jesus speaking. And he interprets the Scriptures for us. Matthew 21, 42. Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And you will find in Acts 4, 11, the same verses quoted and applied to Christ. If you'll turn now to 1 Peter 2, verse number 4. 1 Peter 2, verse number 4, you see something here of uh, the interpretation of all this for us by the Holy Spirit. So, 1 Peter 2, 4, to whom coming, that is, unto the Lord Jesus, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, this is Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, he like precious, he that believeth in him shall not be confounded. And so it is clear, brethren and sisters, that the word corner is used, the, the, the term, the corner, is used of Christ in much Scripture. And what I've shown you there in the New Testament, in those different verses, is this. The Scripture gives the clear theological or Christological interpretation of the term, the corner. And how vital that is. He is our corner according to the Bible, according to the theological, Christological interpretation of this term, the corner. He is our corner. 
And therefore, He provides stability for the soul in the Christian life with all of its struggles. And when death comes and eternity dawns, He is found to be that stable, that sure resting place upon which we are able to stand without any uh, thought of insecurity or fear as we leave this world and go out into God's eternity. We have got one who is the corner. That's how the Bible describes our Savior, our Messiah. Now, what a contrast with the worthless and the useless objects of trust on which unbelievers rest. Go back to Zechariah 10 and look at verse number 2 again. The idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Those are telling words. They comfort in vain. Oh, yes, men like these who worship idols, diviners, that means they actually claim they can tell the future, and so on, and all their paraphernalia, and they go to their devotees, those who follow their religions, and they lie to them. They're supposedly bringing comfort. They're supposedly, supposedly uh, assisting those people out of life into eternity uh, through death, but they have nothing to tell them that will give them any comfort at all. It says they comfort in vain. It's a lie. It's a deception. What a contrast. Let me just say to you at this stage, the object of faith, that's really what we're looking at here, the corner, raises the whole issue of faith and stability that comes from knowing the truth and having a real faith. The object of faith determines the value of faith. If the object of one's faith is wrong, and of course, it's always wrong if it's not Jesus Christ, then the subject of faith of that person is valueless, being misplaced completely. Now, I have heard people say, and I'm sure you've heard it too, and I'm not talking here about people who maybe follow a false religion, although the same is true for them, but I've heard people in our own circles, and I'll say something like this, I don't know what I would do without my faith. And I know that those people, by their lifestyles, by their behavior, are not regenerate people at all. And so they'll talk about this, and they'll say it that way. I don't know what I'll do without my faith. But I fear that they don't have the corner because they have no time for Christ. There's no faith in Christ in their lives. There's no repentance from sin in their lives. And yet they keep talking about their faith. It's very easy to talk about your faith and say all kinds of pious things and, and make yourself feel good or make others think well of you. But the question is, what is the object of your faith? Is it Christ alone? See, that's where the battle at the time of the Reformation, was fought. That involved the great doctrine of justification. 
Rome could come along and say, yes, we believe in being justified, but she said, as she still says to this very day, you're justified only as, or no, I should rephrase that. You might be justified so long as you keep up with all of our rituals and our ceremonies. But the Reformers came along and they said, Christ alone is the object of true saving faith. And that's what we're seeing here in Zechariah 10, verse number 4. Out of Him, sent by God, came the Messiah, called the corner. And it has to do with a true saving faith. Remember again what I just said there? The object of faith determines the value of faith. If a person's trust, confidence is not in Christ, that person's faith is useless, empty, vain. And furthermore, it will not lead to a change of life. It will not lead to love for the Lord and, and desire for holiness and godliness and walking with the Lord. It will just be an empty thing. It will be without value. We must move on. The second thing is the, 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 um, the nail. As you read there, the nail, and I trust you will begin to see that these terms are wonderfully connected in a real sense. The reference is actually, when it speaks here of a nail, it's, it's a reference to a peg that's driven into a wall upon which items are hung. I don't know what kind of pegs you have in your home and the walls or the doors, in the past, in the old-fashioned days, you just drove in a six-inch nail, and it did the job all right. So, that's what he's writing about here, the nail or the peg that holds things up. Now, you might think, how could that refer to Christ? In this way, it's speaking of the fact that the peg must possess the strength required. So, in the first one, the corner, you have Christ and stability. In this one, you've got Christ and strength. The peg must be of such a material that it will bear the weight that's put upon it. Let me show you something about this. Turn to Ezekiel 15. Ezekiel chapter 15. And look at verse number 3. And uh, the, the whole chapter here, Ezekiel 15, is built around the um, matter of the vine and the wood of the vine. And so, you read in verse 2, we'll just start there for a moment. Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? And so, the purpose of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 15 is to discover what the purpose of the vine actually is. And of course, let me just say it at this point, the only purpose that a vine has in this world is growing grapes, bearing grapes. It's for no other use. That's the message of Ezekiel 15. And there's a reason for that message. I'm not getting into that now. But that's what the chapter is all about. Now, look at verse number 3. Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Or will men take a pin of it? to hang any vessel thereon. Now, I don't know whether you, any of you have a, a vine in your greenhouse or if you've been in a 
presence of vines. You'll know what they're like. They're spindly, long tendrils, and so on. And you would never even think of taking some wood from the vine to make a piece of furniture. It just would not work. It's not the kind of wood that's got any strength in it. And that's really seen because when the vine's growing, it has to be supported itself. It has to be stayed up. And so you never use vine wood for any reason. And here's the Lord asking this question, uh, verse 3, Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? Or will men take, now he gives something specific, will, will men take a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? And you can read it this way, will men take a peg of it or a nail to hang any vessel thereon? So you get the message, I'm sure, that uh, that which will serve as a peg in a wall or a door has to be sufficiently strong to bear everything that's placed on it. Now go to Isaiah 22, Isaiah chapter 22, because the nail or the peg is another pointer to the Messiah in the sense of being sufficiently strong to bear the load that hangs on the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So turn to Isaiah 22 and look at verse number 20. It shall come to pass on that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him uh, with thy robe, and I will not read any farther for time's sake. Uh, go down to verse number 23. And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Here's the peg again. Here's the nail. And it said, I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Now, it's not saying that Eliakim is a nail in a sure place. It's saying that this is what's intended through this man Eliakim, that he will be like a nail in a sure place. But there's the language I want you to notice. A nail in a sure place. There's one of the proverbs that we use quite frequently, isn't it? Uh, a nail in a sure place. You've heard that, I'm sure, many a time. Here's where it comes from. But go a little farther down to verse number in fact, just before you go anywhere else, look at verse 23. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house, and they shall hang upon him all the glory. And the word glory signifies weight. All the weight of his father's house. The whole house hanging on Eliakim who is described as if he were a peg or a nail in a sure place. It goes on to say in verse 24, All vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, now listen to this, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off for the Lord has spoken. What is the Lord saying there? He's saying that Eliakim, who seemed to be a nail in a sure place, was not really so, and when the day came, he failed. Now do you get the picture? Because back here in Zechariah, please turn back there, Zechariah 10 and verse number 4, Christ is spoken of 
as the one who comes forth from the Father as the Messiah. He's the corner signifying stability. He is the nail signifying strength. The lesson is, brethren and sisters, that Christ alone is that immovable name. If you ever had a peg, maybe in a cement wall, after a while something happens. The cement begins to crumble, or the, the, the wood, if it's a wooden peg, it begins to rot. If it's an old six-inch nail, it begins to rust. And at some point, it's going to drop out, and all that you have hanging on it is going to be lying in a lump on the floor behind the door or wherever. And so, it's all very vivid, but what is the Lord teaching you and me today? He's teaching us that we need someone who is strong enough to bear the load of our sin. That's the issue. We need someone who is a nail in a sure place, who has the strength, the power, the guilt, to, uh, the, the, the ability to save us from sin's guilt and from sin's awful corruption. And that person is Christ. And so he does that. He holds us up. You see, when the Lord went to the cross, he had his people with him in the sense that he was representing them. But he also had his people's sin upon him. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his own body to the tree. And thank God he was strong enough to bear that awful load of your guilt, of your sin, and carry it within himself to the tree and bear the punishment of it and not fail. But no more than that, what about your cares? Never mind your uh, sins. We need someone to bear our cares our sorrows, our trials, our difficulties. First Peter again, 5 verse 7, casting all our care upon Him, for He careth for us. Isn't that what these verses are all about? As I said earlier in Zechariah 10, somebody to care for us, someone who's a nail. You carry maybe many cares today, your heart is overwhelmed. Your soul is burdened. You don't know where to turn, maybe. Ah, my friend, here's where to turn. There's a nail in a sure place, and that's Christ. And He can carry and does carry the heaviest load. All the sins and all the cares of His beloved people are on Him, and He's holding everything up by His own mighty power. You remember the story, the the passage there in Luke 15 about the Lord, uh, the, the shepherd, going out to find the lost sheep. And you know how he got that sheep home? He placed it on his shoulder. He carried it home. Once the Lord saves you, you're on his shoulder, and you never leave it. Because the shepherd carried that sheep the whole way home with the sheep on his shoulder. And it brings out this idea, this truth of the Lord's care. He never forsakes us. He never fails us. He's the nail as well as the corner. Thirdly, Christ and His subjugation. Mike and Zechariah 10.4. It says, Out of Him the battle bow, the battle bow. 
And that's an obvious instrument of war and conflict. And this points to the Lord's kingly, His royal office as the mediator of His people. The Shorter Catechism asks the question, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Question 26. And the answer is, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Christ is your battle bow. That's what you're being told. Christ executes the office of a king. He does all that. He subdues us, first of all. He makes us His own. He conquers our hearts. Then He rules and defends us. He restrains and He conquers all His enemies and our enemies. A king implies a kingdom, and Christ has established a kingdom on this earth consisting of all His people, and He is the ruler of that kingdom. And that's what the Catechism is teaching that He is our battle bow. He's the one who, over, who rules over us, and on our behalf He subjugates all enemies. That's why I say Christ and His subjugation. That's a good word, because that's exactly what it means, to defeat enemies, to drive them down, to overcome them. And so on our behalf, the Lord is subjugating all the enemies who, who fight against Him and against His people. I know at times it doesn't look like that. I know at times it seems we're defeated. But no, the Lord's manipulating and controlling even the most evil forces on earth for His own glory, for His people's good. And again, I say to you, from the human point of view, that does not seem to be the case but from the divine point of view, that's exactly what's going on. And we'll continue to go that way until the very end. Then the fourth thing, out of him every oppressor together. Now, in that uh, terminology, the word oppressor is the key word and must be understood clearly. Because here we have Christ and His sovereignty. The Hebrew word for oppressor is used 24 times in the Old Testament. It's translated most often as either taskmaster and then oppressor. Now, the sense of the word signifies a person who has ultimate authority over others in terms of rulership. That's the idea in the word. That helps us to understand why the translation here is actually a reference to Jesus Christ and His sovereignty. The sense of the word, as I said, I'll say it again, signifies a person who has ultimate authority over others in terms of ruling. Furthermore, it's the character of the ruler that determines the nature of the rule. That's also very important because this word for oppressor is used of bad men, wicked men, evil men in other places. So how do we determine it's, that it's used of them in those places and not of Christ? Because they have absolute authority, you see. 
is sovereignty in that sense. How do we determine that it's used of bad men? How do we determine that it's used of Christ here? Well, in other cases, we know that it's used of bad men because of their character. They're wicked, they're ungodly, and they oppress the saints. And most of the time, that's how the word is used with regard to wicked men who oppress God's people. But here's a case, and what I'm saying to you is, it's used of Jesus Christ, and it's used of Jesus Christ for the simple reason that the Holy Spirit says, out of Him that is sent by God, there comes one who is the corner and the nail and the battle bow, and then the oppressor. And the point is that by the sequence of the verse, the word here, oppressor, must refer to the same person. And what it's saying is Christ's character is such that His sovereignty is not oppressive with regard to His people, with regard to or in contrast with the false shepherds of verse number 3. The Lord's sovereignty over us, His people, is unlike that of the false shepherd. The point made is this, that the Lord's absolute, absolute rule is for the benefit of His people. So the Christ comes forth as the oppressor. The one who has absolute sovereignty is what the word signifies, absolute authority. But in the case of Christ, as far as His people are concerned, He has absolute authority over us for our well-being. And at the same time, His absolute authority over evil men is for their destruction. Do you see it? He is an oppressor to evil men because His absolute authority over them, and one day He will destroy them. That's what the Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 15, Then cometh the end, when He shall have put down all rule and all authority. He will trample all His and our enemies under His feet. To them He will be an oppressor who will bring their destruction one with absolute authority. His character is right. His character is holy. His character is without sin. And therefore, He will judge righteously those who are against Him and His people. And you see, here is the significant thing, brethren and sisters. Evil men, wicked rulers, religious leaders who are apostate and teach another gospel or whatever, in their own way, they think they have absolute sovereignty. The old Pope in Rome believes that he is the head of the church, and he can do what he likes, he believes. And there are others like him, the heads of Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever, care, whatever false religion you care to mention, they all believe they can snap their fingers and everybody else jumps. And multitudes do. So they are absolute rulers in that temple sense. And they oppress their people. Romanism is a priest-ridden oppressive system. 
It's not a Christian system, and we must hold to that. I say that in passing, because ecumenism has painted Rome in glowing terms that she is a Christian system, she's to be embraced as a, as a sister church, etc., etc., and you know that ecumenism was dreamt, or not dreamt of, was actually formed within the very mind of the Vatican. And the Protestant dukes who have fallen for ecumenism don't know that or don't want to know that, and they embrace Rome as a Christian system, and yet all the while she is a priest-ridden, oppressive system that destroys millions of souls. One day the harlot church of Babylon will fall and Christ will bring her down along with every other false religion because as the absolute ruler for his people on their behalf he will bring deliverance. You see, Christ brought Babylon down. I mean the Babylon uh, in, in these times, that Zechariah is writing about political, military uh, Babylon, he brought her down and he delivered his people. He became an oppressor to that Babylon, the absolute ruler who destroyed her, and set up the Medes and Persians, and then brought them down, and set up Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and then brought him and his sons down and then set up the Roman Empire. The Lord did all that for His own purposes. And all the while, He's taking care of His people. What a wonderful view of our Savior we have here. He is our corner, our nail, our battle bow. He is our absolute ruler. My dear friend, I want to be under His rule. You know, the Bible says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, is it 30, 28 to 30? Or 1 John 5, 3, His commandments are not grievous. For the child of God, the Lord's commandments should be and if we're walking with God, will be a delight. It's not grievous to keep the Sabbath day. It's not grievous to obey the law. It's a delight. Because the love, our gracious God, who gives to us His commandments to, to guide us and to direct us through life, that we might glorify His name. I trust God will bless His Word to you all this day and that He will write these truths upon our minds. We'll bow together in prayer and let's just come to a close. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank Thee for the One who was sent forth out of, from beside the Father to do the will of the Father to become to us all that these terms signify. And Lord, we pray today that Thou wilt write Thy Word in our hearts, and Thou wilt bless it to us, and Thou wilt 
encourage us through it, and may we come to before Thee surrendered and, and pliant in terms of Thy will. Be with us, we pray. Bless the meeting lying ahead of us now, the time of prayer, the morning worship, and come down, O God, in power, and tabernacle with us, we pray of Thee. We ask all of this for Christ's sake, for His glory, for His eternal praise. Amen.